Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Good morning. This morning's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. And it's about Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahar Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thank you very much for that, Lynn. Can we just bow our heads and just pray once more before we begin? Father, as we open your word, I pray that we have really soft hearts, that we lean into what you have to speak to us this morning, and um, we open up with a sense of vulnerability to what it is that you might be wanting to do in our heart right now, Father. So I pray that for each of us that we just say, God... I'm here and I'm, I'm wanting to listen to whatever it is that you have to say to me. Amen. 
Have you ever, uh, you know, been in your house and walked into a room and when you've got there gone, why did I come in here again? And then often it takes going back to the place that you were in to go, oh, oh, that's right. You know, I went to the kitchen to get a sponge because I spilt my cup of tea. Yeah? That happened to me a lot in 1998. So in 1998, I moved from from Dunsborough to Perth, and I didn't really know Perth very well at all, not spent much time there. I moved into a suburb in Willerton that I, I really didn't know at all. Um, I went to Curtin, I'd never visited. I moved into a house that I'd never seen before with a housemate I'd only met once. And so I was having this, what am I doing here, moment a lot. And what I found that year was that I'd, I'd be at Curtin and I'd be in the library, which is massive, surrounded by people, walking through the library, but I'd have this um, strong sense of feeling alone. Or I'd walk through Garden City, again, very busy with a lot of people, but as I'd walk through the mall, I just felt really unseen, really quite lonely. Nobody knew my name, nobody knew who I was. So that was a difficult year as I transitioned. Has anyone, um, does anyone understand that feeling? Has anyone here moved here to Australia or moved to Perth, maybe from another state, and not really known anyone? Can I just see your hands? Okay, so you understand that feeling, don't you? Actually quite lonely in a place full of people. Um, but perhaps, like, maybe there's another scenario where that you felt alone. So maybe it wasn't that so much that you moved towns or countries. Maybe something shifted in your world that caused you to feel alone. When I was 12 years old, my parents separated. And my mum had been unwell for quite a long time. And um, there was quite a great deal of tension and pain, and you might even say chaos, um, in, in our home life in my family. And so one weekend, my mum um, packed a small bag, and, and maybe I misunderstood, but I thought she was going to Perth for the weekend. So two weeks later, when she hadn't come back, um, I went into the kitchen where my dad was leaning on the bench reading the paper. I said, Dad, when's mum coming home? And he said, never. And he actually didn't even look up when he said it. I said, what? Never? She's never coming back. That's it. She's gone now. And I, I didn't know what to say. I just turned around and I ran to my room. And I, I ran in and I slammed the door. And I sat behind the door. And I just, I just cried, you know. And I cried long and messy. Um, I cried because I felt like I wasn't enough to make my mum stay. And then I cried really loudly, intentionally loudly, because I wanted my dad to come and I wanted him to push the door, pushing it so hard to open it, and squeeze in and sit on the floor with me and, and hug me and say, you're going to be okay. But he didn't come. And I would say that that would probably be the loneliest moment of my life. I'd never felt um, more unseen than I did in that moment. Maybe you can relate to that. Now, I want you to think on that and keep that feeling as we look now at the life of Abraham and Sarah and the story of Hagar that we're going to read. Maybe you can relate to when tragedy strikes your life, 
circumstances that are wrong and unfair and not caused by you, cause you to feel as though the only thing in front of you is loneliness or isolation or pain. And and this is how the character that we're going to look at today, Hagar, I believe that's what she was going through. And I want that feeling to linger. Because we're going to zoom in on her story. And we'll see that she is a foreigner and a slave. She is despised and she is cast out. We're going to look at what this passage has to say about this problem of being alone and despairing through the character of Hagar. So let's read from chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build my family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. So here we have Abram and Sarai. They've been freed from Egypt, where Sarai had been taken by the Pharaoh as his wife for some time before she was returned to Abram. In Egypt, they acquired goods and livestock, such as sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and they also received some Egyptian servants. So it's quite likely that this is where Hagar came from and when she came to be with them. And one thing that we see in the opening of this passage is that Hagar is referred to as being an Egyptian and she's referred to as being a slave, but not simply and never simply by her name. And notice that she is spoken about, but not spoken to. And so far in the story, she has no voice. So this, so far, this is a story about Hagar the possession, not Hagar the person. Last week, Brian explained that, God's, that God promised Abram that his descendants would be many and he would give him a child who was of his own flesh and blood. So Sarai and Abram are trying to make this happen. Sarai is barren and her solution is to use her servant to bear the son that Abram must have. And this is why she gives her Egyptian servant Hagar over to Abram. And we see that in the passage, she is now then referred to as a wife. But the story goes on to suggest that she isn't a wife of equal standing. And she actually isn't a wife of much permanency. And although we see this as an immoral act in our society, to take a second wife or to order someone to bear your child in the ancient Near East, that wasn't illegal or even um, considered immoral. It was quite a legitimate thing to do. And the servant had no say in the matter. So as the text says, Abram sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. Now let's read on. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Perhaps Hagar has grown arrogant in her new position as a wife and a childbearer. I wonder what her disdain for Sarai looked like. Perhaps she'd become a bit haughty or a bit difficult to deal with. Verse 5 then, Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slaves in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. It's interesting that Sarai blames Abram for the conflict, even though she is the one who came up with the plan to use Hagar as a surrogate. Abram says, your slave is in your hands. So it seems that Hagar's second wife status doesn't really mean much. Power and ownership of Hagar is given entirely back to Sarai when Abram says this. And Hagar is just a handmaid. Sarai can do what she likes with her. Do whatever you think best, Abram says. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Hagar chooses fleeing to the desert rather than staying to endure Sarai's abuse. The desert is a very dangerous place and Hagar risks death to leave the protection of Abram's household. It seems that she would rather choose death than the vengeance of Sarai. Hagar is pregnant and without support. She is the oppressed, the marginalised and the one who's supposed to protect her has turned a blind eye. And if I analyse it further, I can't help wondering if all the anger and the pain, the abandonment and the rejection that Sarai felt when she was um, a handmaid in the household of the Pharaoh back when they were in Egypt, if maybe she's putting all of that onto Hagar now, she's been in this position not that long ago. And it doesn't seem to have produced any empathy at all for Hagar. In fact, maybe like it's just channeling all of that pain that she felt back onto Hagar. Sarai, a former victim, she could have used her power to help Hagar, but she doesn't. And, you know, as too often is the case, the victim has become the bully. We read in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. So Hagar is running and she's going in the direction of Egypt when the angel of the Lord appears to her. God finds her near the spring and his question to her invites her into a conversation. And we notice that God uses her name. He calls her Hagar. He's the first one to do so. And he asks her, where have you come from and where are you going? But clearly he's been watching her and he knows her name. Um, I reckon he knows the answer to this question. So why does he ask? And we notice that she answers the first part of what he asks her. Where have you come from? And she says, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. It's actually a really serious crime that she's committing. Um, so kudos for her for being honest. Um, but then we notice that she doesn't answer the second part of the question. Where are you going? And I believe that she actually doesn't really know. I don't think she can envision a future for herself. She has no plan. She's just run out into the desert. She doesn't know where she's going. And where is she to go? She's a pregnant slave woman on the run of very little worth and highly vulnerable in that place. So what does God tell Hagar when he finds her? Let's read. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. 
the angel said, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So God gives her a command when he meets her in the desert. He tells her what she needs to do next. He answers that second part of the question for her. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. That's where you're going. It seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Go back to the person who is oppressing you. But perhaps when God offers Hagar the chance to confess, I'm running away from my mistress, he also gives her the chance to own up to her part to play in this problem. She had been uh, despising her mistress. She'd probably been rubbing her nose in the whole pregnancy thing. Oh, I'm so pregnant. She'd not acted as a servant should have acted, and um, she was part of the problem. So she had the chance to then own that. Seems to me that the ancient Near Eastern desert is a pretty terrible place for a pregnant woman to be. We see this, we're going to see this in the coming weeks as we look at some of the things that are happening in the neighbouring communities, which are pretty bad. In sending Hagar back, I think God is actually doing um, the thing, sending her back to the place where she'll be safest. So she'll be back under the protection of Abram's household. So let's not see it as too harsh. And also, um, God doesn't just send her back. He makes her a promise. I will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. And then it says, The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So her baby is going to live and he's going to be a boy. That's pretty good news for her and pretty convenient because I don't think she'll be getting an ultrasound anytime this century. So quite a comfort, I'd say. Um, but I'm not sure about the wild donkey part. Um, when, my, when my girls first enter kindy, so I've got four little girls and um, the youngest is in kindy this year. When they first go off to kindy, I get this letter home that asks me to fill in what are my daughters like, you know, and I, I think that it's really actually for the teacher to get some idea about what I'm like. Um, are there any teachers in the room? Would you say that's true? Because that's my suspicion. So I always say nice things about the girls. I always say they're lovely, they're polite. And then and there's always a section, what are your hopes and dreams for your children? And so I never write anything academic. I just write, I hope they have fun and they use their manners and they're polite. Because I don't want the teacher to think that I'm high maintenance. I want them to know that I'm not a scary, intense parent. Like, phew, okay, Mrs. Cherry's going to be all right. Do you think that's, that, that's really what's going on? <laughs> Okay, so teachers in the room, what would you think if you got this back from a parent? Ishmael is a complete pain in the donkey. A stubborn outsider who doesn't play well. He likes to hit the other children and the other children will probably hit him back. Poor Hagar. But you know, she doesn't really focus on that inconvenient part of the story. That she's going to raise a strong-willed child, let's put it like that. Because her, her encounter with God contains so much good news for her. She's going to be a mother, and not just a mother to Ishmael. God promises that she will have many descendants. Hagar couldn't envision a future for herself when God first asked her, where are you going? 
But when he meets her out in the desert, he tells her of the plans that he has for her and he gives her a hope and a future. And how does Hagar respond? We read, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So Hagar, in her distress and her desperation, she sees God. And in that moment that she thinks she's alone, God is there. And even though she has no idea where she's going, she recognises him. And there are several firsts that are taking place in this encounter. Aside, you know, after Eve, Hagar becomes the first woman in the Bible who's been visited by the divine messenger. She's the first woman to be given the promise of descendants. She's the first woman to see and have a conversation with God. And she's the only person in all of Scripture who gives God a name, El Roy, which means the God who sees me. Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman, the nobody, the invisible, has been seen. The slave woman, who was never called by name by the people who owned her, is called by name by the angel of God. And we know that Hagar must not have kept this to herself. When she goes back, she must tell others about her encounter because the story tells us they even named the well after the place where this encounter happened. You know, they wouldn't have done that if she'd kept it to herself. That was the place that I met with God. And they called it Bir Lahoi Roi, the spring of the living one who sees me. People knew that that was the place where Hagar spoke with God. She is convinced of the significance of her encounter with the living one. Now, as we look at Hagar's situation, we see that God has clear promises for her, but we can also see that his promises for her come with some condition. In order for God to bless and fulfill this promise to Hagar, she needs to do what he has told her to do. And we know that God's promises are often conditional. Let's consider some other promises that we find in Scripture. Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. There's things for us to do there, isn't there, for him to make our paths straight. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have a part to play, just like Hagar's promise was conditional. God plays his part, we must play ours. And ours often looks like trust. It looks like obedience, enduring, confessing our faith, submitting to God's instructions, even when they're difficult, and even when we've been waiting for ages for this promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled. God has given Hagar a promise, but he's also given her this condition, go back and submit. 
we see that Hagar is obedient because we next hear of her in chapter 21. By this point, Abram has become Abraham and Sarai is Sarah. They have had their son Isaac and he is probably about three years old. And Ishmael is probably 16 or 17 at this point in the story. So we jump forward to chapter 21, if you've got your Bible with me. And from verse 8 we read, Isaac grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave and the slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So this day, there's a great feast. It's a great celebration of Isaac. And all attention is on Isaac, the younger son. The passage tells us that Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. Note that it doesn't simply say Hagar's son was mocking or even Ishmael was mocking. Note that it doesn't say Sarah's eldest son was mocking. Sarah hasn't taken Ishmael to be her own. And her problem doesn't even seem to be with Ishmael so much. Her problem seems to be with Hagar's identity as a mother. It's always, Hagar is always spoken about in terms of her relationship as a mother and her mother's status. Get rid of that slave woman and her son, Sarah says. So clearly I'm team Hagar, yeah? I think there's no evidence to suggest that Hagar had continued to despise Sarah in that 16 to 17 years after she returned with God's instruction to submit. I think Hagar had been true to what God asked her to do. But Ishmael bullies Isaac and Sarah can't stand to have Hagar and Ishmael around anymore and she casts them out into the wilderness. This wilderness... Picture it for a moment as a very harsh place, very, very hot, extremely arid, very, very dry. I can't help thinking of a man named Robert Buguki when I picture this desert. You might remember Robert Buguki. I was thinking when I Googled it, it was just a couple of years ago, but it was more than a couple. He was an American traveller who set off for a little trek in the great sandy desert between Port Hedland and Broome in the northwest of WA um, back in 1999. There you go. I thought it was a couple of years ago. When his bike was discovered by the side of the road, a massive rescue effort was sparked and he was found dying in the desert 43 days after he took off um, by a Channel 7 helicopter. Um, and Baguki was the source of much frustration for people because he set out completely unprepared, didn't tell anyone where he was going um, and just went off into the wilderness. And I think Hagar is about to be put into the same condition as Robert Baguki. Let's read. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. 
She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as and she sat there, she began to sob. When Robert Baguki was found, he was 400 k's from the place he started out and he admitted to being lost. And I think the same might have happened here to Hagar. She simply got lost as she wandered. Only there was no one looking out for her. There were no hourly updates on the news, no specialist trackers brought in, no helicopters or Channel 7 journalists with bananas. She was just a, a woman after all and a slave. Hagar was alone and she was desperate. She was out of water in the blazing sun, knowing that she would die. So desperate, she couldn't even bear to stay with her son, so he wasn't alone while he died. Hagar had been in a similar position before, hadn't she? Where she had no idea, out in the desert. Even more desperate this time. And last time, God had met her in her isolation and he'd made her a promise. And she'd been faithful to the conditions of that promise for maybe even 17 years she had submitted to Sarah. I don't believe that God is about to break his promise to Hagar. We read, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled up the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So we see that God comes through for Hagar. He's the God who sees her and he hears the boy's cry. And you know the word Ishmael, it means God hears. This name has been a reminder to Hagar for the past 17 years that I hear you. And every time she speaks her son's name, God hears. She's reminded that God heard her. God heard her cries. He heard her misery. Every time she spoke his name, she was speaking out God's promise for her, reminding her that he sees her and that he will not forget her. But then when she's dying in the desert, she's given up hope. She leaves her boy and she walks away from him until God intervenes. He opens her eyes up to see the water that was already there and it saves Hagar and Ishmael from death. And the passage goes on to tell us that the boy did well. He married, and Scripture tells us that he did go on to be the forefather of many, the Ishmaelites, and he was the forefather, in fact, of the Islamic faith. I started by telling you about a time that I felt very much alone. I told you about a little girl crying in her bedroom, desperate for someone to come and tell her that she was okay. What does this passage have to say to that little girl? It says, Yvette, I see you. You are not alone. I have a plan and a hope for you. And you know what? 
it was like five years before I really spent any time with my mum and another three or four before we fully reconciled. But God was there. God was with me sitting on my floor crying and he was with my mum. And he never left me and he never left her. And today she's one of my closest friends. I wonder where do you see yourself in Hagar's story? Are you running away? Are you escaping a situation and you just want out, feeling that you've run out of options? What does God have to say to you? He says, I am here. I see you. Look at me. Focus on me. I know that you're feeling stuck with no way out, but I see you and you see me and I have a promise and a hope for you. And you can say, I see the one who sees me. Or are you waiting? Are you like Hagar? You're patiently in the service of Sarah, obedient to what God has asked you to do, waiting for God to fulfill his promise to you. But you've been waiting for a really long time and you're tired. What does God have to say to you here? He says, I see you. I haven't forgotten you. Hold on and keep doing what I've asked you to do. Keep your eyes on me. I'm always thinking of you and watching everything that concerns you. Or maybe you've been cast out. Maybe you're in the desert and you feel like giving up and the promises aren't going to happen and it's too late. You're just dying. And I believe God is saying to you, look, it's not too late. The water is there. It's right there. You just have to open your eyes and I'm here in front of you. I'm right here. And you can say, I can see the God who sees me. Or maybe you're like Hagar at the end of her story. With her son and all the grandchildren around her. And she knows that this promise has come to pass. And I bet she's rejoicing. I saw the God who sees me and he's come through. And I bet she's still still telling everyone, that's the place where I first met God in the desert. She's telling her story and she's giving others hope and courage. At this time when you feel unseen, God is there and he sees you just like he saw me. He is the God who sees you. Hagar's story, it's so full of hope. And it's not just hope for you and me, it's hope for all people. You know, this is a series on Abraham, but we just kind of hit the pause button on him for a moment. Because you know what? God loved Hagar too. And her story mattered to him. She mattered a great deal. What does that tell us about the heart of God? He is for us. He is for our families at the school and our community around us. He is for the migrant and the immigrant and the refugee. He is is for those who don't yet know Him. He sees all of us. He is for all of us. You know, not just us who are gathered here, but He runs after the one in the desert. He sees them too. And His greatest promise is His Son, Jesus, who will return to take Him home with us. That is the promise that we, we won't let go of. We know He's coming back for us. And there might be times where we feel like, I'm dying here, but that promise will come to pass and we will be able to rejoice in that. We're going to sing in a moment, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, God, and I'm in your hands. 
Great is your faithfulness. Would you stand with me now as we pray that through? Father God, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you, Father God, for those who are um, really struggling and really feeling alone. I pray, Father God, that this morning that they know, they know deeply within their heart that you see them and that you are for them and you have a plan for them and a hope and a future, God. I pray for those who are like dying in the desert who just feel that all hope is lost. I pray that you restore their hope, that they open their eyes and see the water in front of them and they drink it. And they go on, Lord, knowing that your promises stand and that your faithfulness is great. And I want to celebrate and thank you, God, for those who have seen the promises come to pass in their lives who have seen you at work and can rejoice and just say, those were the moments that God came through and that moment there and that moment there. And I can tell you, He is real and He loves you and He sees you. I rejoice and I thank you for those people, God. And I pray that you give them courage to tell their stories and encourage us and encourage those out there. And I thank you, Father God, that you are here for the widow and the orphan and the refugee. You are here for the the downcast, the homeless, the oppressed, the marginalised. You are here for the child crying in their room who feels alone and abandoned, God. I thank you, Father, that you are here for us and that you've given us your son and that we'll be with him again. And all your promises will come to pass, God. I thank you, Father.